You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio. 89.7 WGLS-FM. This is the Rowan Report presents The True Crime Collective with Carly Murray. I have a lot of recent cases to cover from this month, including that internet conspiracy theorist Alex Jones was ordered to pay $1 billion in damages for his statements about the Sandy Hook massacre. Parkland shooter Nicholas Cruz was sentenced to life in prison, avoiding the death penalty. And we're going to cover the disturbing massacre at a Thailand daycare. Alex Jones, who infamously spouted conspiracies on his platform, Infowars, that the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting was a hoax staged with crisis actors, was ordered to pay nearly $1 billion in damages to victims' families. Jones's followers began to harass victims' families, which led to a defamation and emotional distress trial. This all began much earlier in the year, and Jones was at first receiving daily contempt of court charges for not appearing. Of course, if he testified something contradictory on the stand under oath, then he would face a perjury charge. If he testified something contradictory to his followers' beliefs, he would possibly lose his base. This summer, the jury awarded $4.1 million to the parents of a Sandy Hook victim, and on Wednesday, eight families won nearly $1 billion in damages, but it is unclear how much they will actually receive, since Jones and his platform face financial ruin. He was in debt, applied for bankruptcy, and Infowars is only worth $270 million maximum, according to the New York Times. Jones live-streamed the verdict on his website and reacted to his viewers, claiming that, quote, they covered up what really happened and now I'm the devil, he said. I'm actually proud to be under this level of attack. There were 15 plaintiffs for which the amount was divided. The families of the Sandy Hook children who died in the attack were subject to death and rape threats, confrontation, and messages encouraging the victims' graves to be dug up, according to witness testimony. Although emotional distress is known to be difficult to prove, it was determined that those statements were outrageously despicable beyond the manner of acceptable behavior in society, and that the distress was intentional and ongoing. Although he continues to mock specific family members in responses, Jones stated, I've already said I'm sorry and I am done saying I'm sorry. Nicholas Cruz was sentenced to life in prison without possibility of parole on Thursday, not even 24 hours after the Alex Jones decision was made. Cruz was facing the death penalty for the murder of 14 students and three staff members at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School on Valentine's Day 2018. Cruz is now 24 and pleaded guilty to 17 counts of first-degree murder. His attorneys argued for life without parole due to Cruz's alleged cognitive defects from fetal alcohol syndrome. The testimony was reported by multiple sources to be gut-wrenching with graphic images of the crime scene. Jurors also viewed the remains of the crime scene at the high school. The jury did not unanimously agree that the aggravating factors outweighed the mitigating factors. The mitigating factors are Cruz's alleged mental defect and his state of mind after his mother's death, And the aggravating factors are the occurrences during the crime to determine the level of heinousness, such as deliberately stealing firearms and fleeing the school afterward, demonstrating a knowledge of guilt. Undoubtedly, the fight for justice will not end with the sentencing of Cruz, as many parents remain angry at the Broward County School District. It is alleged that the district's response to Cruz's requests for an alternative school were denied, and he was instead expelled with no further offer of resolution. There have also been allegations that school security was aware of the warning signs and that Cruz was a present threat, and that these were also ignored. 
This is somewhat new in terms of school shootings in which all factors are considered and how it all culminates into the perpetrator's path of violence. Cruz's sentence is controversial, and it is important to pay attention to the continued combat against mass youth gun violence in our country. Almost all school shooters who did not commit suicide before police apprehension did not receive the death penalty. Perpetrators under 16 do not qualify for the death penalty, but it is possible that the jury took Cruz's age into account since he was so close to 18. Even if he was under 18, he could have received this life sentence due to the severity of the attack. On Thursday, October 6th, a former police officer killed more than 30 people, many of which were children at a Thailand daycare. According to the New York Times, this is the deadliest mass shooting in the Southeast Asia nation ever carried out by a lone perpetrator. The gunman was identified as 34-year-old Pana Kamrab, who was a former police officer fired for drug possession, according to the Royal Thai Police. He entered the Child Development Center during nap time and began shooting and stabbing children as young as two. One victim was a pregnant teacher. He also shot at people while driving away and then killed his wife, four-year-old child, and then himself. Gun violence is rare in Asia, but Thailand has the highest gun ownership rates in all of Asia. A total of 38 people died in the rampage, including the perpetrator. Now we are going to switch gears a bit and cover some crime history. This week's case is, of course, Jeffrey Dahmer. Dahmer has been in the spotlight again lately because of the new Ryan Murphy Netflix series, and lesser so, the docuseries that is part of the Conversations with a Killer Netflix series by Joe Berlinger and I've seen a lot of mixed reviews on social media. The case of Jeffrey Dahmer is actually what led me to do crime reporting because there's really just so much to it. I'm not going to describe every crime in detail because that would take 10 hours like the two series and they cover that. But I think what's important to take away are the societal failures that allowed him to get away with murder for over a decade. The details you hear about the cannibalism and making zombies are completely grotesque and horrific, but in terms of shock factor, he's not that much different from Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy or Ed Kemper. Evan Peters, who plays Dahmer in the new series, gave an interview about how he and Ryan Murphy wanted to demonstrate how Dahmer is fascinating because he is the only prolific serial killer that seems to exhibit remorse and especially confusion about what happened and why he had such dark urges. If you search online, anyone can access his police report and confession, which I could tell the series mostly followed as a guide. It is hard to get through, though, because it is extremely detailed. Dahmer is only one of two infamous killers that confessed to his crimes and helped police put the story together without getting anything in return. Kemper was the other because he believed that he was friends with the police. But in contrast, many of Gacy's victims were never identified, and Bundy only spoke about his crimes in third person to receive stays in execution. If you ask people who lived through Dahmer's arrest on the news, they'll describe the images of police in hazmat gear, carrying 57-gallon blue plastic drums down the steps of his apartment filled with acid and body parts. That is definitely the scene that is ingrained most in the public perception. In all of my research, though, having not lived through it, there is one scene that sticks out in my mind the most. On May 27, 1991, only six days after Jeffrey Dahmer's 31st birthday and only two months before the scene that I previously described, police encounter a naked young boy. To them, he appeared heavily intoxicated, but four local women were insisting that something was wrong and that the 14-year-old Conorak Synthosymphone was terribly hurt. He was bleeding from his head where Jeffrey Dahmer injected him with hydrochloric acid after drilling a hole. Suddenly, Dahmer, with a criminal record of indecent exposure, disorderly conduct, public intoxication, and the child molestation of Conorak's brother, Somsax Synthosymphone, walks over to the unfolding scene and convinces police that the child is his boyfriend. 
Officers John Balserzak and Joseph Gabrich escort the two back to Dahmer's apartment where there is a recently murdered victim's body on his bedroom floor, out in the open, had they looked inside. The four women who alerted police were Glenda Cleveland, Sandra Smith, Tina Spivy, and Nicole Childress. And Cleveland actually called police back to see what happened and if Synthosophone was okay. Police listed this as a domestic dispute, which reminds me a bit of Gabby Petito's experience with police. And the two officers worked in law enforcement for many decades after. Balserzak retired in 2017 with special awards and recognition. Connor Synthosophone was Dahmer's 13th victim, and there would be four more in those two months before his arrest. There are hundreds of horrible, demented, and sick crimes that happen every day in every city, and the public does not hear about even half. Certain killers or victims receive all of the media attention at once, and that has been a huge criticism of crime reporting. A lot of the criticism about the Dahmer show from people my age on Twitter who never experienced the age of the serial killer in real life mirrors what was said about the re-emergence of Ted Bundy content a few years back. I definitely agree that there is an element of glamorization to draw in viewers, but I don't agree that this content shouldn't be out there or talked about, because it really is our nation's history. These incidents capture our attention for what they reveal about the horrors of human nature and society. Sexism caused Dahmer's mother to have her cries for mental health help ignored as doctors prescribed her several pharmaceuticals at once while she was pregnant with him and throughout his childhood. Racism allowed these young men to go missing before the eyes of their community and for how the community's outcries were ignored. Homophobia also obviously factored in when homosexuality was so taboo that everyone in the LGBT community faced a lot of dark things because they were forced to hide. In the police report slash confession, Dahmer recounts a time that he was drugged by another man on a night out and woke up in a precarious position. Law enforcement really avoided the issue and wanted nothing to do with it, so a lot of these crimes and disappearances went unsolved. Dahmer's progression was truly learning that he could get away with anything, from stealing a mannequin to repeatedly getting lenient sentences for sex offenses. He really was never in hiding. Another part of the Dahmer story that I was always particularly fixated on, they chose to include a lot in the new show. After he was murdered in prison, his parents had a dispute over his brain, which had been preserved for potential study. Lionel, his father, insisted that it was cremated with the rest of his body. There were a lot of things mentioned about physical trauma within Dahmer's childhood, and I often wondered if that's what led to his homicidal urges. In other crimes of passion, the killer is often imagined in a fit of rage, but Dahmer was always eerily calm. And again, there is some striking element of remorse along with his knowledge that he will never be forgiven and that he deserved to be served justice. People with head and brain injuries have all kinds of strange effects, and if his brain had been studied, I wonder if his brain hernia as a child led to something physically abnormal. I have no doubt that it led to his fast fascination with dissection and anatomy. If you did watch the series, which I did think was excellent and covered a lot of important details that some documentaries about him don't always show, I would definitely do some fact-checking here and there before having an opinion. Some characters and instances are combined and many interactions with the victims are fictionalized. The thing that bothered me the most was the choice to combine Pamela Bass and Glenda Cleveland. Niecy Nash did such an amazing job and if nothing else, I'm so glad that Glenda Cleveland is getting the recognition that she deserves. Cleveland was not Dahmer's neighbor and he did not give her a meat sandwich sandwich as depicted. Pamela Bass was Dahmer's neighbor and she claimed that he tried to give her a meat sandwich and she didn't describe the incident beyond that. 
or even as threatening, just disturbing in hindsight after learning about the cannibalism. It was revealed in conversations with a killer, the Dahmer tapes, that Dahmer once gave Bass's husband $60. I personally do not think that it was a human meat sandwich that was given to her because it's not really in his MO to share when the whole point of the murders was for him to keep the men he was attracted to forever as his own and not his neighbors. The police report is the most accurate source in terms of literature, but again, it's a hard read because it's so depraved, but it's also written by an officer as Dahmer is speaking, so there are lapses in clarity. His trial is available online, as is the Stone Phillips interview, where a lot of insight toward his personality is shown. That interview was right before he died, which I always believed, and the series also hints a bit at this, indicates that he wanted to die. Then, of course, there's My Friend Dahmer, which was made into a movie a few years ago, which was also excellent, but it's a graphic novel written by his real friend from high school that later became an author and artist. That depiction is one of my favorites because it only covers murder at the very end, and it is more focused on his psychological spiral through the eyes of a peer up until the first murder right after high school graduation. The show is told in a very foggy and lucid way, and the order of events is mixed up. You do have to kind of have a prior knowledge to figure it out. I liked the surreal perspective because it mirrored what one would expect Dahmer's feelings and memories to be like. The glimpse into his high school years doesn't really elicit sympathy, like many argue, but it is more of a testament to how the most troubled kids are often the ones getting in trouble at school. There was a lot of criticism about Evan Peters always playing a serial killer, but I think he's truly matured into the challenge of portraying Dahmer. When he first worked with Ryan Murphy in 2012, he played a fictional version of the Columbine Killers in season one of American Horror Story. He was the ghost of a school shooter who acted out many events identical to those in the Columbine Massacre, and that is another instance of kids with dark urges causing trouble and crying out for attention. There are definitely always warning signs in retrospect, and these portrayals popularize the signs to look for. It is a great example of how you can feel sympathy, but only to a certain extent. It is also a great example of how it is never just one catalyst. Horror movies don't cause everyone to kill, and abandonment and parental divorce do not cause regular people to kill. Jeffrey Dahmer was a product of religious trauma and the subsequent shame of his homosexuality, his physical brain trauma, neglect in terms of his parents leaving him alone when they got divorced, but also the way that authority ignored his crimes, the military, copious amounts of alcohol since high school, and maybe some horror movie influence as we see him forcing his victims to watch Exorcist 3 while rocking back and forth. Just a quick note on that, Dahmer was so obsessed with The Exorcist 3 because there is a killer called the Gemini Killer in the movie. Dahmer saw himself in this character because he was a serial killer who was also a Gemini. The killer was actually played by the actor known for Chucky, and I always wondered if he knew about Dahmer. I'm sure he must. Also to that point, Dahmer was obsessed with Return of the Jedi, and so are a lot of people. His movie preferences are more of a quirk than a catalyst, but I can't imagine that it was healthy to latch onto. A really interesting choice was that the series only showed Dahmer's death in graphic detail. There were lots of gruesome scenes, but the audience didn't have to witness the murders in action like they did with his. To be fair, the docuseries displayed the actual Polaroids and crime scene photos, which are not publicly accessible unless you go into the Milwaukee police station and request them. Gacy was also included at the end and how he was executed the day that Dahmer was baptized in prison. I mean, it's all horrific, but the comparison to Gacy showed how he tortured his victims and made them suffer before death. It was kind of unnecessary to include him, but it was interesting that it was happening pretty close by in Chicago while Dahmer was in Milwaukee at the same time. 
The other most common feedback I've seen in the past few weeks is that the show did not get any permission from the victims, which is something I definitely sympathize with. Unfortunately, law and crime are public knowledge and you do not have to get permission to retell history. If I personally had someone close to me who is a victim of crime, I would not want the story to sneak up on me over and over again, and I get where they're coming from. However, these assumptions help categorize crime as strictly entertainment instead of the law precedent that it is. There are many victims and victims' families across the world that fight for coverage because media coverage can lead to justice when the justice system fails. That concludes our crime coverage for this week. Tune in to Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM for the latest in crime news and some new takes on crimes from the past. This was the Rowan Report Presents, the True Crime Collective with Carly Murray on Channel 2 on rowanradio.com.